0: Welcome to the podcast, walking you through the ICU. I'm Kaylee Dayton, an ICU nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. This is your guide to helping your loved one survive and thrive during and after critical illness. This is not medical advice, but medical information. Please collaborate with your wonderful ICU team to apply this information as appropriate for your loved one. If you are looking for tools for advocacy specific to your loved one's journey, please book a counseling session with me at www.DaytonICUConsulting.com. The podcast blog with studies, pictures, videos, and resources related to these episodes are found on the website as well. I know this has been a lot and I commend you for sticking with this podcast. This is an overwhelming crash course, but this episode is so important. Mobility is probably not your first inclination when it comes to helping your loved one. Getting them out of bed when they're nearly on their deathbed may feel counterintuitive. That's okay. The belief that bed rest is best during illness is an erroneous belief that has been passed down throughout the generations and in some cultures more than others. Yet for the past few hundred years, we have continually realized how harmful bed rest is but let's first define bed rest bed rest is staying in bed for more than 24 hours this can be while awake you can lift your legs arms scratch your nose shift your body you're still moving you're just not up bearing weight and leaving the bed yet this alone can impact outcomes such as death infection and physical function for patients in the hospital and especially the ICU. We have found that bed rest increases the risk of blood clots, pneumonia, and worsening illness. The reasoning and mechanisms by which bed rest causes damage are complicated and extensive. And you can listen to the listed episodes from the other podcasts for deeper explanations. For now, understand that bed rest is very harmful. Muscles can break down quickly by lack of use alone, but when patients have other things such as infection and malnutrition going on during their illness, it fuels the fire of muscle loss. Yet being stuck in bed alone can cause significant muscle loss. One study monitored a group of healthy young men that were not sick and were eating regular food, but stayed in bed for one week. They found that these young men had a 1.4 kilogram lean muscle loss. That is a 3.08 pounds of muscle. Again, there was nothing else going on besides just being in bed, but they could sit up, lift their extremities and move. They also became 5% more insulin resistant, which is significant to the overall outcomes of ICU patients. Now. Immobility is different and far worse. Immobility is what happens when you have your arm in a cast. The arm cannot bend those muscles cannot move. The limb is immobilized. When patients are sedated and in medically induced comas, they are immobilized. This alone is very harmful and potentially lethal. When muscles do not ignite and contract for days to weeks, they are deeply harmed. They waste away and lose the mass to function the way they usually do. But during critical illness, for many reasons, they can also lose the neuromuscular connection to be able to even move and control those muscles. Meaning the signal from the brain to the nerves that tell the muscles to work is disrupted. So the loss of muscle mass and the connection from the brain to the muscles is called critical illness neuromyopathy. This makes it so that patients cannot move or cannot move well. It is ultimately a neuromuscular disorder developed in the ICU and sometimes from ICU care. So they turn off sedation after days, weeks often. And then it takes hours to weeks for the patient to wake up. And once they're opening their eyes, now they have physical impairments from being unable to lift a finger to being unable to sit up, stand, walk, and even breathe or swallow independently. When patients develop this level of muscular weakness and dysfunction, they are eight times more likely to die when they develop critical illness neuromyopathy. Patients at risk of developing these um, are those that have sepsis, multi-organ failure, have high blood sugar, being female, receiving certain medications such as steroids and paralytics. And in the research, you will see that the longer a patient is on the ventilator, the more risk they have of developing critical illness neuromyopathy. Likely, This has very little to do with the ventilator itself, but rather the treatment they receive while on the ventilator. Let's look at sedation. When patients are deeply sedated, they cannot move. They stop using and controlling their muscles for as long as they are sedated, which can be days to weeks or more. This alone can cause massive muscle loss. Yet the ICU community is usually unaware that the sedatives themselves affect the muscles in different ways. Propofol, for example, disrupts the sodium channels of the muscles, impairing their ability to contract. Propofol also increases the blood sugar, which exacerbates muscle wasting. It has also been observed to be myotoxic or propofol. It's toxic to the muscles, causing more breakdown for unclear reasons. It is also probably an independent risk factor for diaphragm dysfunction. Meaning even without the ventilator, propofol can damage the diaphragm, which affects your ability to breathe without support. Other sedatives can do a lot of the same things. And for said, for example, can be even harder on the diaphragm. Among many causes of muscle loss, such as casts and bed rest, Sedation causes the most detectable muscle loss, the quickest in less than seven days. Limb weakness is strongly associated with diaphragm weakness. If your loved one comes out of a medically induced coma and cannot give you a good high five, chances are much higher that they will not be able to take big and consistent breaths on their own without wearing out due to this critical illness neuropathy and diaphragm dysfunction they have acquired during their time under sedation and stuck in bed to be honest two year survival rate for icu survivors that have this icu acquired weakness and a diaphragm dysfunction is only 36% only 6% 36% of those that have this will survive in the following 2 years This is a significant reason intubated patients on the ventilator that receive these medications for so long then need tracheostomies. A tracheostomy is a hole cut into their windpipe or trachea with a little tube that connects to the ventilator because they're going to need weeks to months of rehabilitation to be able to have the muscular strength to take their own breaths. This is often a consequence of the muscular weakness developed as a result of sedation and immobility. I am embarrassed to admit that this is often the norm in the ICU community. For many teams, it has been accepted, especially during COVID, that a high portion of our patients on ventilators will automatically need a tracheostomy and pig feeding tube and will then be sent to another care facility to rehabilitate. They don't know any other way. They've never seen anything different. They usually don't even understand what is causing this. For example, I've worked with COVID families. The teams will tell families that their loved ones lungs are too sick to be off of the ventilator, and yet the support from the ventilator is almost minimal. They'll have settings like a 40% oxygen and a peep of Five, the inability to be off the ventilator is not primarily from sick lungs in that kind of scenario. It is from weakness. They are too weak to breathe. And the COVID is probably not the main culprit of that. The sedation and immobility will do that even to a perfectly healthy person that is down and given those medications for that long Awake and walking ICUs have the goal of treating the initial problem that brought a patient to the ICU without causing a downfall of the other complications that will keep them there and plague them the rest of their lives. They recognize that they can either keep them awake and moving on the ventilator and get them better sooner, off the ventilator quicker and straight home to resume life or they can sedate and immobilize them, allow their muscles to waste away, keep them on the ventilator for days to weeks longer, send them to a care facility for weeks to months after that, and let them face the mental, psychological, and physical damage of their treatment the rest of their lives. That important choice to sedate or to mobilize a patient is often that black and white. The normal approach is, quote, they're sick, we'd better not move them, unquote, Yet the awake and walking ICU approach is usually, wow, they're sick. They could get sicker if we don't move them. We have to get them going. As long as they're oxygenating and tolerating mobility, they are rolling. The patient can tell them what they're feeling, what they need, when they need a break. They use mobility as a tool for delirium. If a patient is getting confused and wild, they don't rush to grab sedation to mask it. They urgently treat it with mobility as well as family and sleep. They will do whatever mobility the patient is capable of. Sometimes delirium makes patients so confused and unable to control their bodies that they can barely stand, let alone walk. Even sitting at the edge of the bed and holding their own core and head up can stimulate them to reconnect with their environment. You can see the lights come on as they start to make eye contact, answer questions and follow commands. You can see the agitation and terror start to melt away during mobility. Often, even sitting there will wear them out and they will lay back down after 15 minutes or so and get real restorative sleep. It is more effective and safer to mobilize patients than to give most sedatives. Sedatives will usually make patients wake up later as a danger to themselves and the staff since they're still delirious. If we allow them to exercise instead of sedating them, then they are far more likely to wake up a little more calm and oriented than before. This team will mobilize them every night to facilitate sleep. They literally walk them to sleep. Research has shown that walking patients at night improves sleep and prevents delirium. This is a process and expertise. The decision in those early moments after intubation are pivotal, but why, why is it so important to avoid sedation and keep patients moving when they often require a lot of ventilator support and are really sick? Why not just sedate them at first and let them quote rest as most are inclined to do because sedation is not sleep and immobility is not rest. It is rot. The sicker they are, the more quickly their muscles are going to break down. So we need to get them up to prevent or alleviate multi-organ failure, ICU-acquired weakness, and delirium. Mobility is key in preventing delirium. If we start sedation, then we take away their ability to move, communicate, and connect with family and sleep. We sign them up for delirium and muscular loss. Then a few days or a few weeks later, when we try to do a station vacation and wean down the sedation, they come out delirious, agitated, making ventilator alarms, and everyone panics and t- turns sedation back on. And this probably signs them up for at least a few more days on the ventilator. The longer they're sedated, the more delirious and weak they're going to get, and the longer they're going to be on the ventilator. It is a terrible cycle to lock patients into. Then once they've been sedated and immobilized, if the team does want to rehabilitate them and get them off the ventilator, then it is a huge effort and danger. When a 200-pound adult loses the core strength to sit up and hold their own head up or stand, then it may require many people a special lift and lots of work to get them to rebuild their capacity over days to weeks. It is very painful and exhausting for the patient too. Check out my other podcasts to hear it from those that have lived it. I wish the ICU community understood how much easier it is to help a patient get out of bed shortly after intubation when they still have their muscles. It is less work to preserve muscles and physical function than to rebuild it. I promise. Again, mobility is not always an option. If someone has had a massive trauma and or brain bleed, mobility may not be possible. Yet, as soon as they can move, they need to be hustled. For patients with pneumonia, sepsis, COVID-19, different traumas, and so forth, mobility is much safer than is commonly believed. Various studies have shown a less than 1% harm rate that happened to ICU patients during mobility during thousands of activity sessions. The difficulty and danger increase the longer we wait to do it. Okay, now I've worried you. Now you're concerned, but what can you do? Don't go turning off IV pumps and pushing your loved one out of bed. Yet, work with your ICU team. Support and encourage them to implement best practices into your loved one's care. If needed, gently educate. Ask if they have a physical and occupational therapy consultation ordered. If they are intubated, ask why they're sedated. If the team says to rest or to let them sleep, or because they're agitated or to prevent PTSD, tactfully ask if sedation is sleep. If immobility rejuvenates the muscles or where in the literature does it show that sedation and delirium prevent PTSD? Don't be hostile. Don't be accusatory. Just open up the conversation, gently guide their thought process past. What is normal to what is right. Understand their perspective and deeply rooted culture and training in this. If they are intubated and the team tells you they can't order physical therapy until your loved one is off the ventilator, ask them why, or how will they get off the ventilator? If they don't move and lose their respiratory muscles, if they say it is not safe to move them, ask them when it will be safe and what research demonstrates those parameters. Again, don't be obnoxious, but you have every right to understand their rationale and have honest discussion about the plan of care. This may be an opportunity to help them learn and change the lives of thousands of future patients. As you help them get your loved one awake and moving even if your loved one is not on the ventilator mobility is key in helping prevent the need for the ventilator or shortening the duration of time on the ventilator if they reach that point even breathing on their own they need to keep moving all throughout their hospitalization so they can walk themselves out of the hospital and go directly home mobility in the icu has proven to decrease The need for intubation, ventilator-associated pneumonia, hospital-acquired pneumonia, pressure injuries, falls, delirium, aspiration, constipation or ileus, death, intubation, re-intubation, tracheostomy and PEG-2 placements, discharges to the care facilities, hospital and ICU readmissions, time on the ventilator in the ICU and in the hospital. Mobility in the ICU also improves how oxygen moves throughout the lungs, the ability to get mucus out of the lungs, the ability to protect one's airway. It improves diaphragm function, successful extubation discharges from the ICU survival and quality of life. I tell my patients walk like your life depends on it because it very well may and stay in bed. And that is where you will stay. If a patient refuses, we explain it is your right to refuse to get up Mm -hmm. yet. That is like refusing an antibiotic. Mobility is a life-saving intervention. If you do not want this treatment, then we need to discuss goals of care to better understand what you ultimately want to happen here as their loved one and advocate, you are also their cheerleader. They may not be really motivated to get up and move. Many, even those on the ventilator actually are. Hospital beds are terrible and do not feel good. And no one wants to sit in the same spot for days straight. I've seen countless patients right on the board asking to get in the chair and, or go on walks. They want to feel human. They want to use the toilet and wipe their own backside to preserve their own dignity. Even on the ventilator granted, I am referring to a utopia a team that has the culture and expertise to move patients with all of this equipment, yet any level of mobility you can bring to your loved one will be of great benefit. If they are awake and simply sitting at the side of the bed, that alone may spare them from a tracheostomy. If they're walking, you can help push an IV pole or the wheelchair, carry a urinary catheter bag, or just chair them on as they go you will see their delirium and or anxiety improve they will be exhausted but then they can get real sleep after that mobility is magic it truly is a life-saving intervention do whatever the team is able and willing to do understand their perspectives that this may be a really new concept to them that they are short-staffed that they are terrified of your loved one pulling out their tube or falling they deeply believe that it endangers the lungs. There are so many things due to the inexperience and misinformation that make this difficult to push along. Be patient with them, but apply this knowledge and these principles to help get your loved one home. I want to give you all the tools to be able to advocate. I want you to be able to start preventing delirium With mobility, your involvement, keeping your loved one awake during the day and helping them sleep at night, and protecting them from sedation. I want you to be able to have productive collaboration with your ICU team so that everyone is on the same page about how to get your loved one better and back to their lives as soon as possible. Keep going. Hang in there. If you want to help make this life saving information available to others, please leave a review for the podcast, share it with others and share the Clinician Podcast with your ICU team. Thanks for being a part of the future of critical care medicine.